we're going to the third pre-Assyrian prophet of Hosea. Hosea was a pre-Assyrian prophet who ministered to Israel, the northern kingdom, during 767 to 700 B.C. during the reign of Jeroboam II. So same exact time period of political, economic abundance and stability, but horribly evil government corruption, and the people were corrupt as well. And he also was ministering during the multiple reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahazah, uh, and Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. His ministry actually goes through into the exile for Israel, but not Judah. The main idea of the book of Hosea is Yahweh's condemnation of Israel's adulterous unfaithfulness through idolatry, but also his promise to heal and save them. Now what Hosea is going to do is he's going, he's going to still attack the social injustice and the religious hypocrisy, but he's going to focus mostly on the idolatry. And he's going to compare their idolatry to adultery. Just like a man and a woman make a covenant with each other, that if he or she sleeps with other people, they have violated that covenant. So Yahweh has made a covenant with his people, and they have committed affairs with other idols and other gods. And so they have violated the covenant and they're under judgment. And that's the imagery he's going to paint here. However, he has a new layer because his new layer isn't just, I'm going to restore you. His new layer is, I'm going to heal your heart so you won't want to have affairs anymore. And that's the new thing that Hosea is going to add. Is Hosea is going to start talking about the heart being changed. I'm not just bringing you back so that we can do this all over again. I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to heal your heart. I'm going to cure you of your adultery slash idolatry. And that's what he's promised. This is then becomes the hint of why the exile will never happen again. The exile will never happen again because the people's heart is going to change. Now the question is, how is it going to change? But that's the idea. Now, unlike Amos, where he just kind of like slapped you, slapped you, slapped you for nine chapters and then gave you a hug at the end and said, I'll restore you. Hosea is going to slap you, then hug you, slap you, then hug you, slap you, hug you. He's going to bring the hope of restoration in here and there and here and there as we go through. This is divided into basically um, four divisions. And this is more of an anthology of speeches. Amos seemed to follow a, a chronology. Hosea is all over the place. It's like somebody just gathered a bunch of his speeches and put it into the, a best of compilation and then gave it to us. So we kind of have him moving around. So chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of Yahweh with, which was revealed to Hosea son of Beri during the time when Uzziah, Jotham, Azza, and Hezekiah ruled Judah, and during the time when Jeroboam, son of Joash, ruled Israel. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, he said to him, Go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution, because the nation continually commits spiritual prostitution by turning away from Yahweh. In the Greek, it's go marry an adulterous wife. Some of your Bibles say that, some say um, prostitution. The, the idea here is it doesn't seem that, the idea doesn't seem to be like, I want you to go find a prostitute and marry her, or I want you to find a woman who's an adulterer and marry her. 
The idea is that you're going, I want you to find a woman and marry her, and she will become an adulterer. And she will sell herself off into prostitution. <laughs> the Hebrew is very complicated here, but it seems to be more the idea of marry a woman, and this is what's going to happen. And Hosea's like, yay, sign me up to be a prophet. Okay, I hope, this is, I've mentioned this in the past, but now that we're actually going through the prophets, I think you're going to realize, like, when God calls you a prophet, most people in America are like, I'm a prophet of God. Okay? And when you read the prophets, really, you're like, I'd be crying. Okay? If God said, Corey, you are to be my prophet, I would probably fall on the ground and say, no, God, please not. I don't want to be rejected by everyone and be depressed all the time and nobody listen to me and have to do things like this or, or like with Ezekiel where he's got to, like, be tied up and lay on his side and eat food off a dung. I don't want to do that. And then when Isaiah comes along, it's like, God, how long should I preach your message? And God says, forever, because nobody will listen. Like, how depressing is that? Being a prophet is not like, yay. I mean, it is. Because Jeremiah says, I'm done. I quit. But Jeremiah says, but I, I can't stop. Because this is you, God. And I feel compelled. And this is what brings me meaning. But at the same time, Jeremiah is also, hey, uh, God, like, why aren't you doing anything? They're trying to kill me, and you're not doing anything to protect me. I quit. And he goes back and forth like a, a manic depressive. This isn't like the happy joy joy that everybody's wrapped prophet up into in the way we think. And so this is a command. Go marry a woman, and she's going to become an adulterer. And she's going to produce illegitimate children. Now, the first child we know is Hosea's. But every child after that, we don't know. The idea is we don't know who they're connected to. And so this is the, what he's telling them. One of the things that you make a connection here is Hosea is being called to marry a woman that he knows will have affairs. And the same way God married Israel through the Mosaic Covenant, knowing that they were going to walk away. Even as he was crafting the Mosaic Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, and when that day comes and you sin against God with idols and social injustice, you will go in exile. Moses didn't say if. He said it is going to happen because it's the kind of people you are. And this is what Hosea is called to. So Hosea, verse 3, married Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. And then she conceived and gave birth to a son for him. And then Yahweh said to Hosea, name him Jezreel. Because in a little while I will punish the dynasty of Jehu on the account of the bloodshed in the valley of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And at that time I will destroy the military power of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. He tells them to name the kid Jezreel. Now Jezreel is a valley up in the north. And Jehu was a general. And basically he was called by God to be the new king when Ahab was ruling in the book of Kings. So this is 2 Kings chapter 9, 10, well, starting in 8, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Jehu is called by God to be the king. Elijah was supposed to do it, but he didn't. He passed it off to Elisha, but he didn't do it, so he passed it off to another prophet, and he anointed Jehu, 
and he gave Jehu the wrong message and made Jehu think that he was supposed to kill everybody in Ahab's family by divine commandment of God, and God didn't want him to kill everybody, so he bloody massacred everybody in the family of Ahab. And now the prophet's saying, I'm going to judge the entire region of Jezreel for what Jehu did. But what's interesting is there's also another pun going here. Because Jezreel is Yezreel. Yezreel. There are no J's in Hebrew. They're all Y. Yezreel. But Israel is Yezreel. So God is doing a pun saying, name him Yezreel because I'm going to judge him, and which is the entire body of Yezreel. And so the pun is very close phonetically of what's happening here, that Jezreel is just the beginning of what's going to happen to all of Israel. So she conceived and gave birth to a daughter. And then Yahweh said to him, name her no pity or lo Ramah, because I will not, no longer have pity on the nation of Israel. This could also be not loved. Now you're like, oh, that's so messed up. Why would you name your daughter that? Not loved. Especially when daughters like need love more than anybody else. Like, now it could be that this is a prophetic nickname that's given to her, not an everyday name that he's going to call her all the time. But the idea is to paint the imagery. I will, for I will certainly not forgive their guilt, but I will have pity on the nation of Judah, and I will deliver them by Yahweh their God, and I will not deliver them by the warrior's bow, by a sword and military victory, by chariots or by ho- chariots, horses or chariots. So the first daughter, now what's the point? The whole point is Hosea's entire family is going to become an illustration of Israel's disobedience to God, the wife having affairs, and God's judgment for that, the children being named these things. So the wife is going to be an imagery of their sin, and the children are going to be the imagery of the judgment. Because the idea is that the fruit of the the wife is the children. And so the wife is disobedient and unfaithful. So the fruit that she's producing is not love not or no pity and judgment. That's the fruit that is being produced here. This is a graphic illustration of why their sin is so bad. This isn't just you disobeyed my commands. So it's very easy to say, wow, God, you're really harsh and really cruel for punishing people for disobeying the command. And that's how a lot of people read God when they come to the prophets. Well, they, just because they screwed up and disobeyed you, you're going to punish them like that? No, 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 no. What Hosea is making clear is we're in a loving, intimate relationship with each other, and you betrayed me. You betrayed me. This is you betraying me. And this is why I'm so hurt. And this is why I'm so angry. Because we had an intimate, loving relationship, and you said, screw that, and go out and went off for other things. Verse 8, when she had weaned, not loved or no pity, she conceived again and gave birth to another son. And then Yahweh said, name him, not my people, lo am I, because you are not my people and I am not your God. Now here's what's very interesting. God is making it very clear that Israel is no longer the chosen people of God anymore. No longer the chosen people of God. But wait, chapter 1, verse 10. However, in the future, so see, he jumps into the promise of restoration way quicker than Amos did. However, in the future, 
The number of the people of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. Now, where have you heard that phrase before? Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to take you right back to the very beginning when we first met each other and first started dating each other. And I'm going to use the exact same language. I'm going to make you as countable, uncountable as the number of the sand on the seashore. Although it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will flourish in the land. Certainly the day of Jezreel will be great. Then you will call your brother, my people, Ami. You will call your sister, Pity, or Loved. That's why the pity doesn't work. Loved. So this is what God is saying. You are no longer my chosen people. I am done with you. But then he says, however, in the future, you will be my chosen people. And I will bring you back to the land of abundance. This is why a lot of people, the theology that Israel is done and over with is not accurate. Now, we'll talk about that way more when we get to the post exilic prophets. But there's a certain sense that God is done with Israel when they go into exile. And so there's a sense that they are no longer the chosen people, but they still are the chosen people of God. And this is why I think the best illustration that I've ever come up with, there could be something way better out there than what I have, is that they're in timeout. And you've probably heard me say that before. Okay, they're in timeout. The whole purpose of putting your kids in timeout is that you're basically saying that your behavior does not reflect our family's behavior. And your behavior is unloving to everybody. And your unloving behavior is making it miserable for everybody. It's unloving, you're hurting people, and you're ruining our family unity and our love with each other. And if that is allowed to keep going, you will eventually destroy you and us in the process, and it will no longer be a family. And so I need to teach you discipline. And discipline, and the best definition I ever heard for discipline is making sure that it doesn't work out for them. Okay, making sure that what they do does not work for them so that they will learn that in the long term, this will not get me what I want when I'm an adult because the world will not tolerate it. And so you discipline them by saying you can no longer be a part of the community. If you're seeking to destroy the community, and I mean that very relatively on a spectrum, okay, not like your little five-year-old is destroying the community, although sometimes you're saying you can no longer be a part of us because this is a community of love. This is why in First John God says, there, my children do not sin. And you're like, but we do, God. <laughs> but what he's saying is, no, my children don't sin. Because if you're truly acting like my child, you won't sin. The equivalent is like when you say, there's no chewing in my classroom, <laughs> chewing gum. And you're like, well, obviously there is because I'm doing it right now. But you're saying, but there isn't. That's why you're going to spit it out. Because that doesn't happen here. And that's why your, one parent might say to the other, your child just, because the implication, no biological child of mine would act like that. So God can actually say that, because it's perfect. So what you're saying is that there is no that kind of behavior in this community. Therefore, if you're going to do that behavior, you need to go somewhere else. And that isolation and being disconnected from everything is what will hopefully convict them. This is what God, Paul is talking about First 1 Corinthians. The guy who's sleeping with his family member, kick him out of the church. 
Okay, so that he'll be deprived of the community and he'll realize how much he's missing. So when your kid's up there all alone, realizing everybody in the family is still having fun and doing things, he'll realize, wow, this behavior produces loneliness and isolation. I want to be a part of the family connected in love and things, so I'm going to stop my behavior. Now, I wish it was that instantaneous, but it usually involves many timeouts over a long period of time and lots of conversations well along with that, not just time out and not talking about it. And that's what God is doing. I'm putting you in time out, and the prophets are the conversation about what time out actually means. And in that moment, they are no longer his people, so to speak, because they're not a part of the community anymore. But he promises that time out will not last forever because you are my child. And no matter how much you have to stay out here, I don't want to leave you in isolation because it's cruel and unloving. And I love you. I love you so much that I will eventually die for you to get you back into the community and to make you a part of it. In the future, I will bring you out of timeout and I'll bring you back into the covenant community because your behavior stopped. And the hope is that you'll learn your lesson. And that's how Israel is my people, but they're not my people. But they will be my people. They're in timeout. He's not abandoning them. He's not rejecting them. He's not walking away from the promises. He's putting them in time out. So that when they're kicked out of the land and they no longer have the blessings of the community and they no longer have the word of God and they're dying of thirst spiritually for that kind of a relationship, hopefully they'll realize, I'm going to stop my behavior because I want to be a part of this community again. And that's what God is saying here. Now Jezreel, the name Jezreel, in the Hebrew, actually has the idea of a garden and flourishing. So the first time he uses the kid's name, he uses the kid's name in the sense of, I'm going to judge Jezreel. But then when he uses the kid's name again, I'm going to restore you, Jezreel, and you will be what your name is, flourishing, gardening, that kind of stuff. And then you will no longer be not my people, you will be my people, you'll no longer be not loved, you'll be loved. And so all that's going to be undone. All that's going to be undone. And notice that the Davidic line is also pointed out there. The Davidic line is emphasized one ruler. Now, right now you're like, well, that doesn't say David. But in chapter 3, verse 5, he'll hit back on that one ruler again. And he will specifically mention a Davidic ruler. So chapter 2, verse 2. Plead earnestly with your mother, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, so that she might put an end to her adulterous lifestyle and turn away from her sexual immoral behavior. In this section, Yahweh changes from telling Gomer to be like, for Yahweh is now speaking as if he's the husband, and he's, his, Israel is his wife committing adultery against him. But he's still speaking in the future. So he started by speaking the future in verse 10 of chapter 1. And the promise goes away, but now he's still speaking to the future generation in chapter 2, verse 2. But now he's speaking as the husband to his children. And he's telling his children, stop the, idol- stop the adultery of your mother. He's saying, you adulterous wife, Israel, present tense. But now he's looking in the future and he's acting like a husband talking to his children and saying, children, encourage your mother to stop this adultery. And what he's saying is this. Right now, Israel, you're like my wife. 
and I'm sending you into exile for adultery. But once you get into exile, I'm promising that one day you'll be restored. But now I'm talking to you as if you're my children of an adulterous wife, meaning that what you did back then is old. Now you're new people. You're people who are more like children. And you're no longer the old person who's looking back on a life of regret of committing adultery. You're now children starting all over again who have a new life. And so what I'm encouraging you is to tell your old self, I don't want to do that again. And when I bring you back into the land and restore you, act like new children with a new start, with life. And don't go back into that being adulterous. And so this is now him saying, children, don't act like your mother. Your mother is the old generation of Israelites. And they were adulterers and they went into exile. But you are now the children of that mother. And you can learn from your mother's mistakes, the previous generation of Israelites, and start new and be faithful to your God when you go back to the land. And that's what I want you to do. So this is a parent who's saying, don't be like your mother. That is not a good way to be a husband, but this is an analogy. This is an analogy. So this is the context he's now saying. The mother is the old generation of Israelites before the exile who went into exile, and the children of the mother are the new generation of Israelites who were born in exile and are about ready to go back into the land. So she is not my wife, and I am not her husband so that she might put an end to her adulterous lifestyle and turn away from her sexual immoral behavior. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her like she was when she was born. I will turn her land into a wilderness and make her country a parched land, so I might kill her with the thirst. Now, God, what God is basically saying is, the judgment I'm bringing to her is like stripping somebody naked and putting them in front of everybody for public shame. The idea is I'm going to strip you of all your blessings. So the clothes of the mother become a metaphor for the blessings of God. That I'm going to strip you of all your blessings so that you will be naked like the day that I first found you. When you were in Egypt, you had no blessings. You were slaves. But I clothed you, and I brought you out of Egypt, and I married you. But now you've gone and gone back to Egypt, and you've adulterated yourself to Egypt. And so I'm going to strip you of all the clothes that I gave you, blessings. And I'm going to return you back to Egypt naked again, like you were before. Because if that's how you want to be, a prostitute in the arms of Egypt, then I will let you be naked as a prostitute in the arms of Egypt. Because there are no blessings there. There are no blessings there. There are only blessings with me. And if anybody has been in addictions before, you think it's awesome when you're addicted. But there's a point where you hit rock bottom and realize that none of that really brought any true fruit in your life. And you begin to realize that all the blessings that you really wanted and could have had are not there anymore because of your addiction. And you exchange the pleasure of the addiction for the blessings of a content life. And only when you hit rock bottom can you see that. And that's when you realize, I want to be clothed with those blessings, and I'm not finding them in the addiction. For their mother has committed adultery, verse 5. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will seek out my lovers, and they are the ones who give me my bread and my water. 
my word, my flax, my olive, my wool, my flax, my olive oil, and my wine. So she's thinking, this is where I find pleasure. This is where I find food. This is where I find life. I find it in the other gods, the other lovers. And what God is saying is, that's not true. That they're just helping you stay alive. But they're not giving you abundance. Verse 6, therefore I will soon fence her in with thorns. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Then she will pursue her lovers, but she will not catch them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband because I was better off than I am now. I will put walls up around her so that she can't find her lovers anymore. So she can't take another drink of alcohol, so to speak. So she can't get her alcohol or addiction met anymore. And my hope is that I will dry her out. And then she'll realize life was better with my husband and go back to him. This works with some people. This does not work with everybody who's addicted. But that's the idea. I will starve you even from your lovers so you will come back to me. Verse 8. Yet until now she has refused to acknowledge that I was the one who gave her the grain and new wine and the olive oil, and that it was I who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used in worshiping Baal. You went after Baal, and you worshipped him. And then your crops grew, and you assumed that it was Baal paying you those crops and giving you the blessings of crop. But it wasn't. The land that was producing for you was the promised land that I gave you. You assign my blessings to the pagan gods. Therefore, I will take back my grain during the harvest time and my new wine when it ripens. I will take away my wool and my flax, which I provided in order to clothe her. Verse 10, soon I will expose her lewd nakedness in front of her lovers, and no one will be able to rescue her from me. And the idea is you've chosen to flaunt your nakedness to everybody, so I will let you do that and I will expose you. And this is the equivalent. Now you're like, that's really messed up. But this is a Old Testament metaphor picture of the equivalent of what Paul's going to say in Romans. Therefore, he gave them over to their sexual morality. So that is very logical and systematic. This is very poetic and imagery. And so the idea is you wanted sexual morality. You wanted all this kind of stuff. Fine, I'll give it to you. And then you will realize that that actually destroys you. One of the worst things that God could ever give you as a judgment is what you want. And the other thing, that the worst thing that he could ever give you is not letting you get caught. And that's what Romans is saying. I will give you over. And that's what God's saying here. You want to be naked with everybody? I will let you be naked with everybody. And you'll realize it's empty. You want to worship your other gods? Then I will give you the worship of the other gods. But I'm going to walk away. And when I walk away, my grain, my wine, all those blessings will go with me. And then you'll realize what your gods really provided for you. Nothing. I will put an end to all of her celebrations, her annual religious festivals, monthly new moon celebrations, weekly Sabbath festivals, and all her pointed festivals. All these festivals are centered around what the land produces. If God walks away, the land doesn't produce, there can be no more celebration. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, about which she said, These are my wages for my prostitution that my lovers gave to me. 
I will turn her cultivated vines and fig trees into an uncultivated thicket so that the wild animals will devour them. You begin to realize why God is so harsh in Amos. Because not only have they made a covenant with God, and then they betrayed that covenant, and they chose to love other gods, as Hosea is beginning to say, but now they begin to assign the blessings and the joys to the other gods. It's like saying, like, having a, a, a spouse who's having affairs over and over again. They're like, but, but my lover provides a roof over my head. And I'm like, no, I'm the one that does that. But we've had so many great vacations together and such fun with people. No, that was our vacation together. And they started assigning all those good memories to the other person. And that would be incredibly hurtful and wounding. And it would just rip you and destroy you. That's the equivalent of the Israelites in the wilderness after Egypt and Jeroboam, the first king after the split, who builds the golden calves and says, Here, O Israel, are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. It is Jesus who died for you and gave you salvation. And now you're crediting it to Buddha for your enlightenment and your salvation. And now you're crediting it to Muhammad and Allah and all this kind of stuff. That's so insulting and degrading. You haven't just behaved wrong. You haven't just violated a covenant. You have gone off after other gods. You have abandoned Yahweh, and now you've assigned every good thing that he's done for you to something else and someone else. And this is why God is so angry, and this is why God is going to give him in judgment, because now what he's saying is, fine, if you think those other gods are doing that, then you will go into exile, remember Amos, and you will carry your gods with you. I will walk out of the land, and your gods will protect you, but they can't. And the Assyrians will come and grab you. And I will walk out of the land, and you will say your gods will bring you blessings and crops, but they can't. And so you will have nothing. This isn't God just harshly punishing them. This is God helping them realize who really truly is the source. If you truly want other gods, then fine, here they are. But when I'm gone and you have them, then it is things like being destroyed, crops dying, foreigners coming and attacking you, taking exile. I'm not exactly making this happen. I'm allowing it to happen because you wanted it. Be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And that's what God is saying. I'm allowing this to happen. This is the same thing. People are so angry that they get sent to hell for disbelieving God. What do you mean, God? What kind of a loving God is this that you would send me to hell just because I didn't believe in you? What kind of a God does that? What kind of a God sends me to hell because I just behaved in a bad way? No, 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 no. Hell is not a place of torment because God created a place of torment. Hell is a place that God doesn't exist. And you said, I don't want you, God. And God said, fine. There's a place right here where I don't exist. So we say, fine, I don't want to be with you. And we're the angry child that storms out of the house and says, I'm running away and I don't want to be with you anymore. And God is the Father that says, I can't stop you. I want you to be here so desperately. And I will die for you to get you back in this house. But I can't force you where I won't force you to stay here against your will. And you say, fine. And you run out and you run away and you choose a place that God doesn't exist. And there's only one place and that's hell. And you end up in hell one day because that's where your path takes you. And if God's not there, then there are no blessings of God. And if God is hope, 
joy, peace, love, gentleness, kindness, the fruits of the Spirit, then if He's not there, those aren't there. And we know what humans are like in the earth when God is present. Imagine what humans are like in a place where God is not present and there are no fruits of the Spirit there. Then we create our own torment. In the same way that the person who's addicted cannot blame everybody else for why they've lost all their money for the addiction and their family has fallen apart because of their addiction. They cannot blame all those people for those things. You cannot blame God for hell being a place of torment because you created that torment because of your walking away from God. And that's what God is saying. What God is doing here in exile, fine. You don't want me and you want those gods? Then this is what happens. No fruit in the land and you'll go into exile and nations will abuse you. He's doing now spiritually for us. Fine, you don't want to be with me and my son who died for you? Then this is what it is. You can go off to a place that I don't exist and that's where you're going to create a hell on earth. And that's what God is saying here. He's not doing this to you because he hates you. He's not doing it because he's harsh. He's not doing it because he's a legalistic, vindictive, capricious God. He's doing this because this is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. And God says, fine. But his hope is that when you end up in that hellish experience, you'll say, this isn't really what I wanted. And I'm willing to get counseling. And I'm willing to get therapy or accountability partners or pray or read my Bible or invite the Spirit into my life so that I will be changed in a person who can be faithful to you so that I can experience the blessings. And not everybody makes that choice. Not everybody makes that choice in an addiction and not everybody makes that choice spiritually. That's what's being said here. That's what's being said here. We want this when we're walking away from him like this. The question is, will it break you enough to want to come back? Verse 13, I will punish her for festival days, and she will burn incense to Baal, idols. She adorned herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgets me, says Yahweh. 